you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real Give me be real. They've got the courage to be drunken buffoons, which makes them poetic. Welcome, one and all, to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm drunken buffoon number one, Chance Solem Pfeiffer. I'm perfectly sober, and I'm Noah Ballard. How are you? It's been it's been so long. It has been a really long time. Um, congratulations to you, Chance. You're you're a married person now. I did get married in the intervening days. Um, feels great. That's great. I feel more qualified to do this show. My lived experience is, you know, up at least 50%. During the viewing of that thing you do when they're engaged comes up on the TV screen on the <laughs> not Ed Sullivan thing they were doing, I was wondering, like... Does Chance feel weird about this? Like no longer simply being engaged, but in fact being married? Yeah. Did you? Was it like a triggering moment for you? Yeah. Careful listeners. Who the hell gave them the right? Careful listeners. He's married. <laughs> no, I'm firmly in uh, Wolfman territory now. Too scary for television. Studio musician, too old. Um, Incredible. So we have a great episode for today and i say great because i i really like found this the movies that fall into this category very interesting um it's basically babe comes out of the woods and onto a tour bus of a fictional band that's also a period piece so we're doing you mean babe like a like a nascent person you don't mean like either attractive woman or like talking pig the expression babe in the woods yes so we're doing this around Almost Famous's 20th anniversary, Cameron Crowe, uh, fictional rock odyssey, came out in 2000. We're also then covering that thing you do, Dreamgirls and Rockstar. Wow, what a lineup. What, what is I love, this thing we've done? What is this thing we've done? Well, I love that it's not only movies about fictional bands. It's also movies about fictional bands released in decades, you know, in which they're, it's not. It's a previous decade. Yeah. We really tried to do one per decade. Couldn't quite line it up. Um, Llewellyn Davis just like wouldn't. I screwed it up. It seems very 50s, but it's 61. So we just kind of ended up doing, having to keep it at period. Four seemed like enough to me. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't get Noah to do her smell for a 90s picture, but yeah, four movies. Next time. Four movies is fine. Um, I just kept thinking about these in relationship to music biopics and the way in which these bands being fictional, because no like service to fans has to be done and no service to, um, you know, copywritten libraries of music has to be done. I mean, if you're going to make a movie about Stillwater, you have to play Fever Dog. I mean, that just goes without saying. <laughs> That's true. People will riot. Um, but they, they do focus so much more on the industry, um, which allows the movies, even if they are, you know, very sensationalized, to have this sort of like wit and wisdom about them, at least right. allegedly, which stops them from 
being melodramas and pushes them much more toward comedy, I think, because they're so full of winks and illusions. For sure. And there's also that huge suspension of disbelief just with these four movies, too, that like the monoculture really got excited about all these bands yeah. with songs that were not actually released and didn't unnaturally like just become part of the zeitgeist. Totally. Like, especially for movies like that thing you do, like, thank God that song is super catchy because that's such a huge feat. If that song isn't catchy, that song plays in its entirety almost 11 times yeah. in that movie. If it's not catchy, parenthetically incredible song written by now late front man uh, for Fountains of Wayne, uh, Adam Schlesinger. Right. Uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. But yeah, but I think for almost famous Dreamgirls, well, Dreamgirls has the fact that it's a musical behind it. But yeah, there's no IP for that headache of how are we going to license all this stuff? How are we going to do fan service? But there's also no IP of like, who the fuck cares about these people and their sort of like knockoff music? Right. <laughs> It's true. Um, it's so interesting. Yeah, this this world that's sort of built, and I think it's most successful in those details when it it remains hyper specific, room to room, mostly hotel rooms, mostly tour buses. Yeah. Speaking on hyper specifics, let's go to Almost Famous, shall we? Because one of the things about this 2000 Cameron Crow, I think neo classic, I think is fair to say. Um, is rewatching it is that like unless you are Cameron Crowe and this bizarre experience of being like a teenage Rolling Stone correspondent who went out on the road who was raised by this like incredibly gifted strict intellectual mother um, unless that happened to you why would that ever be in a movie and maybe I've just like taken that for granted about William Miller before but it's just like a normal movie just starts with like, he's the hot young writer at Rolling Stone out to prove himself. And how's he going to find right. this? But this movie has a half an hour of incredible yeah. suburban San Diego specific stuff that is everything. Yeah. The relationship too with Zoe Deschanel as his older sister and Francis McDormand as his mother. And that's Patrick Fugit um, in his first role. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, it is really interesting to show not only because like there is something incredible about touring with this rock group, but there's also something incredible about touring with this rock group if you've lived the exact opposite of touring with a rock group as your day to day life right. uh, and that sudden freedom and like what you would do with it. So, yeah, I think a weaker movie, of course, begins with him sort of in the parking lot when the car pulls, when the bus pulls up and they arrive and he gets pulled into their world. Yeah. Totally. But yeah, I mean, some of the Francis and the Francis McDormand stuff is great. Cause it also ties in with her f- constant phone calls, you know, the way the story, cause the story could go off into whatever field it would want, but her constantly calling and tethering it to like a forward moving narrative in the quote unquote real world, I think is one of the strengths of this movie. The other kids make fun of him because of how young he looks. Nobody includes him. They call him the narc behind his back. They do? One day, you'll be cool. So you're the kid who's been sending me those articles from the school newspaper. What do you like, the star of your school? They hate me. This is Rolling Stone magazine. We got a couple copies of your stories. I think you should be writing for us. We can only pay, let me see, $700. 
All right, a grand. Does anybody remember laughter? I'd like to interview you or somebody from your band. Oh, the enemy, a rock writer. William Miller, uh, after sort of a chance meeting with all-time great and true, um, uh, or not, you know, non-fictional real-life rock critic Lester Bangs, um, kind of gets shuffled toward. Um, he's supposed to do an interview for of Black Sabbath, can't get it at their San Diego show, and then gets into the show via. Um, a group of don't call them groupies. They're band aids, uh, led by Penny Lane, who are sort of these super fans of these touring rock bands in the early seventies who like allegedly philosophically are not having sex, uh, which makes them not groupies, but that's, that's kind of a joke that that's not true. Right. I get the sense pretty early that they may be having sex with these guys. <laughs> yeah, we've seen this movie more than once and I seem to remember. Um but uh yeah, William gets hooked up with this fictional band called Stillwater, which features uh Billy Crudup's Russell Hammond uh on guitar as the truly uh prodigious artist of the bunch. Uh very funny Jason Lee performance as the perpetually jilted lead singer um uh mark kozalik on bass and uh boo yeah we're booing sorry and then who plays the silent drummer i can't what's his name i'd never recognize him from anything else john fedovich is ed valancourt (laughs) cool man yeah william miller goes on tour gets a big rolling stone story out of it and we're we're here to see if he's able to publish the real details of what he experienced or whether it's a puff right. piece. That's the central tension. It's an interesting time, too, because it's this sort of this point where, you know, the phone, like the Internet's not a thing. So everybody's on the phone and you're kind of going off reputation and the way people sound. Yeah. So if like the setup to this movie sounds somewhat preposterous, it's a mixture of like just sort of accidental duplicity on uh, this kid's William Miller's uh, on his part, but also just this, I mean, as Lester Bangs sort of talks about in the opening of this movie, the idea of going from actual art to bullshit cool and everyone just trying to out cool the other. And that's kind of the aesthetic that's being critiqued too. in some of these early pieces where a 15 year old boy could get a cover story for Rolling Stone after a couple of phone calls. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman and Lester Banks? Oh man. RIP PSH. I mean, every time. You see him. Uh, he's incredible. He's unbelievably funny um, in terms of like his, the rapturous love that he portrays as Lester having for the rock and roll that he likes while also immediately seeming so hungover. Like it really just like nails immediately this guy who is so intellectually attractive to William and any sort of like art snob watching the movie. Cause it yeah. opens with well, him. He's a teenager. Basically. <laughs> yeah. It opens he like with stays up late and does not leave the house. Yes. Um, 
And God, the we did, I did the joke at the beginning, but the riff that he has in that studio where they just like put him on the air or sort of on the air. He's kind of like eight feet back from the mic in that San Diego radio studio just right, right, making right. fun of the records on the wall. Did you know that the letter by the box tops was a minute and 58 seconds long? It means nothing. Nil. But it takes them less than two minutes to accomplish what Jethro Tall takes hours to not accomplish. You see, this, this is fatuous, pseudo-blubber. You know, I mean, which is fine, but voice it off his art, you know? Or the doors, or Jim Morrison? He's a drunken buffoon, posing as a poet. I like the doors. Ah, give me the guess who. Come on, they got the courage to be drunken buffoons, which makes them poetic. But then, like, right away, you also understand that, like, as gifted as this guy is, he doesn't have shit going on. And I love the way the movie communicates that so fast, where Lester is trying to, sort of trying to get rid of William, where he's like, well, I can't stand here all day talking to my many fans. And then they <laughs> go have coffee for an <laughs> incalculable amount of time. That is good. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of mentor dynamic that is both enviable, you know, from William's perspective. Uh, I think a different movie could have like played with how kind of sad it is a little bit more. Sure. Um, but this movie really is all these movies do plays at the sort of hopefulness behind whatever the artistic appreciation happens to be. This to me is a like have your cake and eat it too movie where you have this guy, Lester, who William calls at every turn who's like, don't do it, man. Like you're right to be cynical about this. Don't try to be their friends. Also, you're coming along too late. This art form's already dead. Like you have this guy who's able to provide this sort of incisive commentary and you're able to hold in your head like, yeah. Seems like he's right. Seems like these things are true, much as our main character doesn't want to believe them. But then we cut back to William's life and his his young love and his admiration and his blooming professional aspirations. And you get to enjoy that too. And how the movie pulls off that duality, I still don't quite know. What do you think of the Fugit performance? I think it's mostly good. I think there are a couple cringeworthy moments when he gets mad and you just have that uh like the puberty yelling when he's like really mad at penny lane he's just like there yeah. is no morocco and also it's sort of like i don't know wasn't i <laughs> wasn't i watching a character who um a certain bashfulness was kind of and a certain try hardness was like part and parcel to how he was able to swing this and then he's just like sort of full-throatedly honest for 90 seconds it's a little like i don't know but i think he's like trying something on that maybe he picked up from one of the the bandmates uh, which is kind of like why it's so weird and awkward and feels forced i don't know that that's a product of the performance i think it's great man like i really thought that it was on par um with like that movie eighth grade like in that Mm. oh god like I remember doing, like, don't do that. It's so weird. (laughs) You know, like, every time he speaks to basically anyone, uh, he's going to say something goofy and awkward. I love the bit where he, uh, after the one night backstage in San Diego, he's memorized everyone's names. 
And he's just like, all right, we'll see you later, Jeff, Russell, and Red Dog. Yeah, we'll that's catch the best you next part. time. Which is totally something I would have done and still do when I'm uncomfortable. I'm just like, let's just learn everyone's name to show that we were tuned in <laughs> and then use them. That's great. Yeah. And I love that scene, too, where I think it says so much about, you know, and we'll get into the Kate Hudson Penny Lane performance in a second. But that scene where they're, they can't decide how old they are. Oh, yeah. You know, where they sort of start at 18. How old are you, 18? How old are we really, 17? Me too. Right. How old are we really, 16, 15? 15. Yeah, that's such a great, that's some like movie magic shit right there. Um, yeah. And I think this is one of Kate Hudson's like best performances. I don't think of her necessarily as that exciting of an actor uh but this one's really really good i mean maybe this is just the the role she was born to play Mm -hmm. uh but there is real pathos in in the penny lane yeah i would agree i mean she yeah she has a parallel thing to the band where they are so you know this is like her her life her career if it paid um right and you get to see the shine come off it Absolutely. Yeah, and I think these other movies don't really I mean, I guess Dreamgirls does, but the other two movies don't really do justice to, like to the female characters. And this one it feels like Penny Lane. I remembered her being flimsier as a character, but upon rewatch here, um it's actually a pretty interesting character. I would agree. Um the on- the only real problem I have is the um you know, the attempted suicide and the makeout scene, which on the one hand is just sort of cringeworthy, but you're so like locked in William's perspective there. Like the Sharia Moore bet. I love that song. I get it, but it's, I yeah. don't know. I think it's the one time the movie kind of does her wrong where it's like, isn't it sort of like morbid and funny and gross what she did through William's eyes where actually it's like, maybe we could be a little more concerned about how this character is doing. The read on that was weird. Like, I didn't quite understand, like, what he found so, like, appealing or, like, how he knew in that moment that her, like, throwing up into the tub was the moment that, like, I love her. Yeah, it's played for a laugh um, with the irony in the music. Is it? I think so. He's, like, grinning. Um, I don't know. I think it's... It's just a moment where of amazement, of juvenile amazement, where I just think the movie could be a little smarter than that. I don't know. Y- yes, I think that Penny Lane is important, and yes, I think it's a good impo- uh, a good um, performance by Kate Hudson. But she's also the angle of the triangle that ultimately just kind of gives way to the other two angles. Which I think the again movie magic incredible at the end where Russell Hammond gets tricked into going to William's house. Um, she wanted us to be together is the line there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, then she's the the archetypical mover character for the two that we're a little more invested in. So for I sure. think it's okay. Yeah. You want to talk about the band? Of course. Um, so how who do, you, who do you think... St- I mean, we know a little bit about Cameron Crowe's like, early journalism, but like, who do you who do you think the analogy is for you at least, at least sonically? Uh, what does Stillwater, who does Stillwater sound like to you? I think, and these, 
I haven't said yet that I watched the extended edition of this for fun. Because there's I've, an extended edition of yeah, this. Two forty-five. How maybe. long? Two forty-five. Two forty-five. Yeah. There's that's another movie in here. The the normal cuts only two two. I mentioned this because there's a reference to Deep Purple that's in the extended edition that's not in the theatrical cut. And that's kind of what I was thinking about, like with the with the fucking gargling depth, the chunkiness of Russell Hammond's guitar. Um, but then also like vocals that are vocals that are technically good, but like also not that interesting. Like the guitarist being the the main attraction really reminded me of Deep Purple. And I know Zeppelin is there, but I, I think that the point is that Jeff Beebe is not Robert Plant. Right. I mean, all these movies are kind of about one-hit O'Neaters, if you will. Sure. So, like, you know, they... I mean, Led Zeppelin's, like, ubiquitous, whereas I don't think if Stillwater actually existed, they would be ubiquitous. Right. And Deep Purple almost feels, like, too famous for them. Sure. Uh, and I really just don't have, like, a working knowledge enough of, like, 70s rock to, like, come up with something obscure. Get Casey Welsh on the line. The whole idea here is that Stillwater is a mid-level band up against the limits of their capabilities, right? Against fame and their capabilities. Like, they're not great. No. Yeah, their songs are pretty um, mediocre. Um, Fever Dog is good. But Fever I think that's the dog. point. One, <laughs> thank, you, thank you for that. We wouldn't have been a show if we didn't get one squealing Fever Dog. Um yeah. Nancy Wilson from Heart wrote that song. I think Jason Lee on this rewatch was maybe the consistently funniest part of this movie for me. Um, I just love that idea of the guy who knows that his position in the band is supposed to afford him swagger and celebrity, and he just cannot get it. Yeah. And something about the line, your looks have become a problem, <laughs> is so on the nose. I just, I howled. That is really good. Yeah, Steve Zahn walked, I think, so Jason Lee could run in this movie. Can we talk about another uh, sort of like musical, have your cake and eat it too magic trick of this movie? Yeah, what's that? The kind of bands that we're covering here, Stillwater, are not actually the taste that this movie and no. Cameron Crowe has in music. Absolutely. John and Cat Stevens, like it's so right to my taste, but like that's such soft shit. It is soft to... shit. And it's yeah. such soft shit that I almost thought on this watch that the tiny dancers sing along was the worst scene in the movie. Really? Well, that's a hot take. I don't think that tiny dancer fit the ethos of, Stillwater as a collective and their not at all and their groupies so that they would have sung it and I also didn't understand like 
are they all listening to the radio together or did they just like spontaneously burst into, there's no moment where like someone like plays with a dial the way they do in that thing you do. And suddenly you hear like it coming from a natural place. Like it just begins. It's, it's very, it's just conjured and sort of a, you're right. It's it's totally fantastical. Yeah. It's in the soundtrack and then it becomes diegetic on the bus and they all just, go for it yeah why aren't they singing when the levee breaks together like you'd think that would be the song or something they couldn't get the rights to that one this movie it's 60 million dollar budget 30 million dollars was definitely towards music and the tiny dancer thing they were so in love with it they're like let's just do mona lisa's and mad hatters as well (laughs) yes all right what else do we have to say about almost famous 20 years on anything else who's your favorite cameo not to be an extended edition asshole but there is an incredible scene where kyle gas from tenacious d incredible plays um this middle of nowhere uh midnight disc jockey on a show called night circus and the band like come in <laughs> comes in to do an interview and he he keeps kind of like fading down their song and they're like are we about to do the interview and then he just sort of starts commenting on it and he's just like Stillwater, a band that has been and is, of course, still being in the studio with me now as they were on this very record. And the joke is that he, like, falls asleep. He passes out in the middle of his profundity, and then Jason Lee and Billy Crudup just, like, say fuck a bunch of times on the air because he can't stop them. You sure they didn't say feck? What's the difference? That's a great one. Good uh, for the for the people who saw the theatrical version. Uh, Got a shout out. I mean, Jimmy Fallon's there in a pretty funny role. Um, Rain Wilson, um, even fucking well, Peter Frampton and Mitch Hedberg pop up for a little mm-hmm. while too, which is great. But I think the funniest performance out of a uh, cameo person here is uh, Jay Bruchel. As oh, the yeah. Led Zeppelin super fan who just like silk screens his own shirts with Led Zeppelin lyrics on and just like tells the plot where to go based on which hotel characters are in. I found myself like weirdly like worrying for him. Oh, yeah. He was, was like, definitely meant to end up dead. He didn't die he... in the uh, extended cut. <laughs> Let's tell people how we rate movies and then rate Almost Famous. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. It's an unquestionable good good. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, 
I was so ready to roll my eyes at this movie, especially. I think the biggest technical flaw of this movie is the stupid, like half open title sequence where Cameron Crowe's like writing people's names on a legal pad or whatever. That's like something I would do in high school when I was making student films. And then they're like, Mm -hmm. Cameron, we must stop doing this. We must get to the movie. Like, let us do actual handwritten font on the opening title sequence. But other than that, um, this movie's tremendous. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Of course, it's a Cameron Crowe movie, so like the last half hour, 45 minutes, like doesn't quite know what it wants to do. But it gets somewhere, and it gets somewhere interesting enough that I really do think it holds up. Good, good. Yeah, some context we didn't say is that like this is him mortgaging all of the Jerry Maguire success into semi-autobiographical passion project and it's incredible how well it holds up considering did he do anything good after this are you a vanilla sky apologist at all no hell no (laughs) um it's no i think you bought a zoo but i think you could argue that he never did anything very good again vanilla sky elizabethtown we bought a zoo aloha no Roadies, no. As long as he can produce a trailer that can be scored by a Tom Petty song, he's doing what he has to do. Yeah, almost famous. I'll say it again. It's a minor miracle, and it's really good. Okay, what's next, Noah? I'd like to move to 1996's That Thing You Do. Guy Patterson didn't have a perfect job Ah. or a perfect social life. What's going on down there? Cooking the books as usual, Dad. But what he did have was perfect timing. How about sitting in for Chad just for tonight? Why? Just broke his arm. And in one night... That's too fast, Guy. Slow down! Guy, slow down! Guy Patterson is going to take the wonders... From garage. I almost slugged some girl. She had her eye on my Jimmy. To greatness. There's somebody I want you to meet. Mr. White is with Playtone Records. That thing you do, you know, is snappy. We'd like to release it. We'd be on tour. Well, Mama, son who loves you just left us in the lurch. Darlene, you just got promoted. You mean you're gonna start paying me? I didn't say that. America's own wonders. Yeah, so it's a Tom Hanks writer, director, and star uh, endeavor where an eerie Pennsylvania band scores a one-hit wonder in 1964 and rides the star-making machinery as long as they can with lots of help from its manager. That's an interesting... That's I think that's Tom Hanks tipping his hat to himself a little much in the synopsis. You I think don't Tom think Hanks there's... wrote his own IMDb <laughs> summary here? I can't say I think of Mr. White um, as that important to this movie, frankly. He's definitely like the man. Uh, he's the, I don't know. It's a, it's a very Hanksian role of like the guy who just like is there to get the thing that needs done, done. That thing you need done. Yeah, the thing you need done. <laughs> Exclamation you point. getting done that thing that needs getting done. Breaking our band into the four individuals it was 90 minutes earlier. Like you've always done. <laughs> like you've uh. always done. <laughs> so yeah, the, the the band in this one is... So you're a Tom Everett Scott guy? 
I guess I could see that. Oh, a lot. are you like I a mean, dead man in, on campus, Tom Everett Scott no, guy? I can't get behind uh, TES in almost any other role, but Guy Patterson. Oh yeah, I'm down in the. I'm down. Want to be down in the basement listening to him freestyle along to Del Paxton records. Incredible. And then you have Jonathan Setch, who's Shetch, who's such. Don't know. Such. A, a Setch. He's <laughs> Setch. A, a Billy Crudup wannabe. Hmm. Steve Zahn as the wise talking rhythm guitarist. Uh, and Ethan Embry as the bass player, an unnamed. Uh, that's one of the big mysteries of the movie is what is the name? Apparently Ethan Embry in a 2019 interview stated, no, I'm sorry. 2015 interview stated the bass player's name is Tobias. (laughs) Tobias is about as close as you could get to naming him the bassist while still being a real name. For sure. That's Um, funny. So yeah, so there's this band sans Tom Everett Scott at the beginning with Giovanni Ribisi as their drummer, but in an early right. scene, he falls off a parking meter and breaks his arm. And so yeah. they have to enlist Tom Everett Scott's Guy Patterson, incredible character name. Uh, Your lone beatnik. Right. To be their, their drummer. Um, and I just, I mean... I'm going to start just praising this movie from the start, just on a storytelling level, because like setting up the electronic store, the appliance store where he works as, at his family's business, I think is one of the strengths of this movie. Cause you know, just the way Francis McDormand keeps calling this guy keeps leaving the lights on of the store sign uh, as like that repeating gag. That's like, dude, you got to do the thing you got to do that thing you yeah. do. And so, the but that's such a funny, and the dad is such movie. a great, yeah, the dad's, what's he? Letter burn. Letter burn. <laughs> so earlier you brought up what is still one of the, you know, um, takeaways you must have from this movie, which is how good the song, That Thing You Do is, which I, I feel an absolute certainty if you put out That Thing You Do in a time machine in 1964, it could easily become a number one hit. It's almost incongruous that it, it wasn't a song from the 1960s. Yeah, exactly. Like um, you hear it and you you immediately recognize it. And it's like, but the, you don't because you haven't, you've never heard it before. But here's the supplementary achievement from Adam Schlesinger, which I think is somehow almost even more unlikely, which is that it is a pristine, memorable pop song that feels of the era but that also is driven by an iconic drum part like right because that's what you need to narratively align with the guy patterson character is that it's a song driven by really great drumming too how do you do it Fast. 
Yes, it has to be driven by great drumming, and it has to be the kind of song that could be conceived of as a ballad first that through a mistaken drum speeding up can also yeah. be a like a pop ba- like a pop song. Yeah. It's very interesting, yeah, how they like took us like a catchy pop song and like made sure it narratively made sense. It's so f- hilarious how boring it is at Jimmy's chosen tempo. It is. It's not a very good... Well, that's the like sort of hilarious satire of the song itself. It's it's not anything specific. It's just right. this guy saying to his his companion that, yeah. hey, I like that thing you do. Yeah. The song could be called That Certain Something. Yeah. It's that certain something that you do to me that makes me feel some type of way about it. And you keep doing <laughs> it over and over again. Can we talk about Steve Zahn? Let's talk about Steve Zahn. Steve Zahn's I've, pretty good. He's got a lot of um, memorable one-liners that I've enjoyed for as long as I've been watching this movie. Where like the pizza owner showing him the dollar bills, and he's like, "You know what these are, kid?" And he's like, "Uh, presidential flashcards." Um, the as in, I wonder what happened to the O'Neaters. But I think actually the funniest stuff is the fe- is that it feels like it's unscripted. And what I think is very true to this band is like none of these guys really know each other that well. They go on this crazy ride, and it feels so correct that they break up because they they're just bonded by momentum. Essentially, they're not like close and so the but what's funny is that they then keep doing they keep like having bits with each other that i don't think the other people are really in on so like the whole i am spartacus thing that guy patterson keeps saying is like not a joke he's explained to anyone else in the band it's just like a personal teenage catchphrase right it's so much so that like people are rendered speechless by it and like charlie's there and just like hangs up the phone on him after he does it (laughs) Grace told me that that reminded me that reminded her a lot of me like something I would do as a well that's what that's that's why I think it's it's not surprising that you love this movie is because like you kind of are a guy Patterson sure sure yeah but I Um, like the Lenny's got some some other great lines that I love uh, especially like when they first sign with that one manager who's like always playing a colonel in some war movie or whatever oh chris ellis is that yeah and he's like a man in a really nice camper what's to put our song in the radio (laughs) (laughs) i'm signing you're signing we're all signing i love that Um, or when they're interviewing when they're interviewing them at the state fair and they get to him and he's like oh i'm not even here with these fellas i got a pig in competition (laughs) over the livestock pavilion that's pretty great or when he says that his most influential band is Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooners, which is the fictional <laughs> Elvis-style band they've been portraying earlier that day. Oh, man. The one that really made me laugh, though, is for no reason when he, like... He's so loose. I love how little Lenny really cares. Like, in sure. the moment where the tempo is mistakenly heightened, but it's working... And during the guitar solo, he kind of wanders to the back and he just goes, what's going on back here? You're a lucky man. <laughs> Which is just great oh, Steve shit. Zahn. Apparently, Steve Zahn is actually a pretty talented musician. Uh, parenthetically, he played all of his, the music in uh, Saving Silverman. Another gem. You can... So in none of these movies... Well, actually, Dreamgirls, the singing... Um, 
but none of these like bands are the bands you're hearing. Um, and they all, you know, in the press notes and subsequent interviews, like they all made a big deal out of like, we practiced together so much so we could be like almost a band. It was like, okay, fine. But in terms of the faking it, Steve Zahn's like soloing on like Dance With Me Tonight and stuff, like he is right there on the note. Like it's, he looks very capable in a way that say Dominic West in Rockstar is not even close to playing the chords he's supposed to be playing. That's hilarious. Um, This movie also has some pretty good cameos and also like before they were famous moments we said it already but charlie's there and uh love yep. chris isaac as uncle bob yes that's great um that was also a detail i'd never noticed before is like when they recorded uncle bob's church they add the hand claps to the song you've already heard the song twice at least um, oh yeah but you're you like hear oh it, this like, is good it grows a little a but little every time you hear it they make the one choice to popify it which seems so right yeah I also love Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks' wife, as yeah. the cocktail waitress who inevitably is disappointed that uh, this however old kid like probably won't be able to get a boner. <laughs> much has been made through the years of how much Tom Everett Scott resembles Tom Hanks and how it's kind of funny. I don't see that, that but... You don't? Just physically? I, I I mean that he's got curly hair, but I don't think his face looks anything like Tom Hanks's. I think he's much handsomer than Tom Hanks. Well, that yeah yeah well yeah. But I think it's so funny that Tom Hanks was like, if we believe that comparison at all, that Tom Hanks was just like Rita. I wrote you this bit part where you try to bed a hotter, younger version of me unsuccessfully. <laughs> She's like, great, I'll do it. Anything for you, honey. Let me ask you this. How old are these guys supposed to be? That was a question I had because there's that scene where he's talking to the group of guys at the nightclub and guys like talking about being stationed in Germany. But was that just part of his service or like he didn't fight in World War Two or in like the occupation afterwards, did he? Did he cross paths oh. with Tom Hanks and Bridge of Spies? Like, what, what? What's happening? Korea? Oh, I don't think he. I don't think it was like a wartime stationing. I think all of these guys are nineteen or twenty. Like, maybe it was like a. They're all out of high school. Right, but I almost thought that like the implication is that Guy Patterson's like a bit older than them, because he's into like late fifties jazz, and he'd been in Germany. Because Guy seems to be like also taking his place. He's like keeping the books for the family business. It's almost like he's taking over the store. So I almost wonder if he's like closer to 30. That's so interesting. You could be right. Um, I just feel, I think what's so charming about the movie is they all act 19. Well, sure. Yeah. I don't know. Good question. Let me ask Um, you this. With a 2020 goggles on watch of this movie, is the nostalgia and like the, wasn't it great to be alive in 1963 kind of grating? Maybe I could leapfrog the question. That's related. What a stupid question, Noah. I'm going to answer one of my own. 
No, no, no. It's related for sure. This movie has an odd relationship to black people. And some of it, I think, feels true as somebody who came from like a seemingly, at least to me at the time, innocent kind of sleepy white space. Like when you have a black hero, like the idolatry that you drum up in your mind, that's like kind of what you see play out between Guy and Del Paxton. But it's actually the Oba Babatunde oh, bellhop yeah. who's just like... I don't know like what that character is other than like grinning yeah. a little much. What can you I just do know for you, that sirs? there's like a scene coming up where he covers like for a white person and loses his job. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, that feels and it's, so fantastical. It's just like, I went to the big city and like this man who was just unbelievably happy in his menial labor job told me where to see jazz. Cause I was the most, I was the hippest white. It's like, okay. Yeah, no, it definitely has Calm that. It, it flirts with sort of the, that mythic quality or like that, you know, like supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's related to the opening shot of Eerie PA and I'm loving you lots and lots. Like they, they come from the same place, that kind of presumed innocence. For sure. You mean the POV of this movie and the characters in the movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then he breaks the fourth wall at the end. It's very like um you know, magical black person-y. Oh yes. That's what I do. And then looks at the camera. It's like, what? why is that the final note of the movie? Why is that the final note of the movie? Interesting. It's it's odd. I just noticed that. That's one of the few flaws, I think. Mm-hmm. What else I you think- got? One of my other favorite cameos in this movie, um, I'm not going to talk about Paul Feig being one of the DJs. I hate Paul Feig and everybody knows it. (laughs) We all do know that. In the last scene with Del Paxton, Ernie, the disc master engineer in the booth, is independent film director Mars Callahan. Um, who you do we know? would know from only the very obscure movie that I love from a thousand years ago, Pool Hall Junkies, starring him and Christopher Walken. How about that? I don't know that movie. You Deep recommend? Cut. That's some video store shit right there. That's a nice trick, too, of like, you're at the end of all this, this whirlwind ride that was never meant to be. Bands come and go, as Dell said. But like, the small dream, the small forgotten dream of like, you want me to roll tape on you jamming with Dell? It just feels, it's just tried and true arcing and it works right. so well. And then he's got the tapes with him in the next scene when he gets back to the hotel. It's very cool. It's not a deep movie at all, um, like thematically, but there is a richness in detail that continues to pay off through the years, which I greatly appreciate about it. Good, good. And I almost think, too, that it gets away from some of the larger critiques that we have of it, because it does kind of make that larger point about 
you know, bands like this. Uh, it's out of O. Henry that they're called the Wonders, you know, because of course they only have one hit. Like, why wouldn't yeah. any other band be called the Wonders? And then you put it together at the end. It's almost like the song itself. Like, how could the yeah. song not have been written already? Well, it's like, how could a band not be called the Wonders already? And then you realize, because they're one-hit Wonders. And, like, that's the reason nobody would be called the Wonders, you know? And realizing that this contract that they signed, like, the way Tom Hanks walks out of the studio at the end where he's not disappointed, he's not discouraged, he's not whatever. He's just, he's done with his job and he's gonna yeah. go do the next thing now. Is this like really interesting indictment, I think, of how the capitalist model kind of applies to these young people who have a lot of talent and smarts and whatever and they ride it for as long as it'll go and then the system snaps back into place and they go back into obscurity and yeah. I mean, seeing at the end that like one guy's just like a, a construction contractor uh, is very poetic, I think. Yeah, it has no problem testifying to the to its lightweightness. Right. Which is yeah. great. Very I give it a good good as well. Cool. Um, can I throw out my comp for the wonders? Oh, please. You can get on Wikipedia and it'll be like, here's all the references to the Beatles. That's bullshit. This band is clearly not the Beatles. I think that the comp, and I feel good about this, is the McCoys, who had a single number one hit in 1965. Do you know the song, Noah? That Thing You Are? A fool's guess. The song (laughs) is Hang On Sloopy. They're from Tiny Town in Indiana. Uh, they have one number one hit. They were broken up. The original lineup was done three years later, and the studio immediately made them start doing cover songs. Uh, and the band was done completely by 68 or 69. Um, I think that's, that's the comp I hunted down. That's great. 2006, Dreamgirls. Yes, a trio of black female soul singers cross over to the pop charts in the early 1960s, facing their own personal struggles along the way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it opens with these three young women, of course, Beyonce, Jennifer Hudson, uh, and Anika Noni Rose, about to perform very much at the same, parenthetically black, talent show that gets the guys from the Oneaters out in the opening of that thing you do. But mm-hmm. this one, of course, grounded a bit more in reality does not, the, the, the contest itself does not skyrocket them to immediate mainstream fame. It is means to an end. This movie very much me like everything's sort of a means to an end, uh, which is sort of refreshing, at least in the context of the other three. Uh, but this one is where they encounter the guy who's going to manage them and the larger talent that's going to propel them to the mainstream in Jamie Foxx and Eddie Murphy is James Thunder Early. Uh, and of course, Jamie Foxx is Curtis Taylor Jr. How old were we when we first started singing together? Twelve? It's 
Till we get nowhere. What you need is a break. And I'm here to give it to you. You swear? If I'm lying, I'm dying. One, two, three, hit me! $400 a week to sing behind Mr. Jimmy Early on the road starting tomorrow morning. Thank you so much. You're saving Jimmy's life. I'm at your feet. I'll do anything for y'all. Exactly what would you like Jimmy to do for you, baby? So this is based on a 1981 musical with uh, music by Henry Krieger and uh, the lyrics by uh, Tom Ian. I think I'm saying his name right. The funny thing about this one is that for like legal reasons, I think Krieger and Ian had to deny that the movie was like based on mo- classical Motown acts in the way that like, for instance, Rockstar is just like, this is Judas Priest. Like it's in the reporting. <laughs> This movie's like this. We've never even heard of the Supremes, and if you think this movie is about the Supremes and Barry Gordy, we don't even we don't know what you mean. <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of the proto like Jersey Boys kind of musical before taking the catalog of a person or a group or whatever and turning it into a loosely it's affiliated kind of, drama. Uh, it's a was, stolen jukebox musical. It's a stolen jukebox musical with all the names scratched out and all the records yeah. a little bit warped to sound a little bit different. Yeah. Um, which I think is uh, charming, silly, kind of dumb. Uh, a little... I, I have to tell you that... So I, I watched this movie a few times in 2006. My sister and I really liked it. Um, I remember I liking pretty... it too in theaters when I saw it. I was pretty bummed out to find that the musical was two white guys and the director, Bill Condon, obviously a white guy. Yeah, he's just the um, whitest guy you can find. Yeah. Um, but the the original musical authorship itself was like most troubling to me. Right. Because um, on its surface, it, makes, it looks like a project that really does like celebrate black creativity, but at its core, it absolutely does not. Yeah, which is a huge fucking bummer. It is a big bummer. But it also kind of explains a lot <laughs> in some cases, in some parts of the movie. Well, what are you what are you picking at there? Well, a lot of the movie is about Curtis Taylor, played by Jamie Foxx, who is the Barry Gordy analog and about his sort of his his ruthlessness and his methodology for how he creates this Motown facsimile and um, how he goes from doo-wop to soul to disco over the course of this movie and makes an empire. Um, But sometimes I feel the movie is so focused on the Barry Gordy analog that it's almost like anti-artist. Um that you don't get a lot of like, it's weird that I'm asking for this because I'm never a person who's like, show me a scene where they get inspired to write the song. We all know like that's never a scene I love, but I think like implying a little profundity 
um, creativity on behalf of artists when you're like making a movie about artists is kind of important. Right. I think it's so interesting too about how bizarrely the women are the the titular dream girls are treated by the movie like the movie kind of posits that all their music and even their dance moves come from a guy and that the only way they can find success is by the whatever men do behind the scenes or being the backup singer to men and then sure they have their redemption where they find it on their own but Throughout the movie, it's so odd how little agency even a you know, performer like Beyonce is given. Yeah. Like she she sings and she does the numbers and everything, but even her leaving him at the end comes out of like left field that it's such an odd scene. And I think it's part of, I mean, it's what you're talking about too, is just like the origin of this property and the writing of it. You know, I found it particularly unforgivable that the movie has a scene where Jennifer Hudson, arguably the most talented person, not only like as a character in this movie, but like just in this movie (laughs) has like, has to have a scene where she's in a, like precious esque uh, welfare office, being like, "Well, my dreams were stolen from me from the record company, so that's why I haven't looked for a job." You know, yeah. while her daughter sits there sobbing, and it's like, "What's what's happening here? Like, why why are you portraying these women as so naive as to think that like like they they would be more grounded knowing that like this was such a long shot to begin with that like why would they count on it that's such a a weird sort of uh, anachronistic sense of privilege to think that oh i'm going to be famous one day so i'm not going to look for employment like that's mm-hmm. bizarre just the notion of authorship that this movie for its own reasons seems to refuse to examine like, if you listen to You Can't Hurry Love or I'll Be There or Never Can Say Goodbye or Ain't No Mountain High Enough, um, what makes those songs so great to the, you know, up to the level of 70, 80, 90% is that they're great fucking songs. Like, right. they, they're they're great because they are perfectly shaped pop songs. Um, and I feel like there is this weird... This movie gets so pastiche sometimes that it's just like it's so into just the evocation of the artists that I just feel like not a lot of energy was put toward like crafting like songs that come anywhere close to the actual like Motown hits. And right. I get that it's a musical like that was the priority. They don't have to be songs that came out of Detroit in 1965. But I think there's a weird thing there like CC might be the worst character in the movie too and he's the one who allegedly writes all the songs but his character's so thin there's like a weird thing where the movie doesn't care about songwriting and it doubles back and hurts it right and then the songwriters or the real creative types are seen as like these divas who can operate in the real world yeah and then again like to get their final revenge they hire a white lawyer yeah, what about they like make a record that's like too good and Barry Gordy or excuse me, Curtis Taylor can't touch it. Um Yeah. And I that's something I didn't understand too. I mean, I guess I mean, of course there is the, the you know, the tradition of white artists co-opting black songs, 
you know, for more mainstream success. But like by the end of it, dudes just like stealing copyrights to like yeah. have one black artist write the song and another black artist perform the song as a disco anthem. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't credit, quite though. follow the, I don't follow the logic there. Once you step to the bad side, Noah, there's, there's little copyright can do to touch you for a few Could years, there be a more on the nose montage of <laughs> an individual doing anything than step on over to the bad side where he's like literally gambling enough money to put funding together for his weird little content farm? If I may, incredible business plan if you're a car dealer is to sell a bunch of cars and then double that fortune through gambling. It seemed like their business model to open up a yeah, open up this label was to just be a successful car dealership. <laughs> yeah, that's a banner idea. I do want to give it credit though, the the scene the cut to um the white version of is it Cadillac car? That's hilarious, that yeah. Yeah, and that's also like a historical thing that um, if you were me in 2006, not a history you were familiar with. So you got to give the movie credit for pointing out that uh, historic robbery. By the way, Oba Babatunde uh, played Lamar in the previous movie. And Jonathan Demme, favorite, um, originated the role of Cece on Broadway. Incredible. Good for that guy. It's what he does. Let's talk about some of the good performances in this movie. What have you to say about Jennifer Hudson? Jennifer Hudson, as most critics at the time pointed out, is like absolutely electric. And I think one of the big flaws of the movie is not centering it on her uh, and giving her more stuff to do in that middle hour there. Because, I mean, this is a two hour and ten minute movie and she's really just at the beginning, kind of like a, a touch in the middle. And then she has her revenge in the end. But she's not the protagonist, which I think is a huge mistake because ultimately, well, who is the protagonist? Mm-hmm. Is it music? Uh, <laughs> I think, unfortunately, it's like Curtis Taylor. Yeah. Which is a mistake. And then the other a good thing about this movie, but also strange thing about this movie is that Eddie Murphy's really good in it too. And you're going to see... Great. Like there's going to be, there's like shades of Dolomite in there, which he's then graded in years later, almost 15 years later, Jesus Christ. But then like the movies, like, well, Eddie Murphy hasn't had that many good scenes in a few minutes. Do you think he's got some heroin in his pocket? Cause he could just pull it out if you wanted him to, he's going to do it. He's going to do the heroin and then he's dead. Yes. But I think the best acting in the entire movie is when... Curtis Taylor is like James Thunder early. I don't give a shit about this patient song. And he like just takes out his heroin kid and everyone's like, James, are you sure? And Eddie Murphy, it's an inspired choice, whether it's in the script or not, just like looks off everyone in the room being like, says nothing, but it's like, I'm doing it. And everyone just like slowly kind of leaves. Like the, there's some real power to that performance that is, it's given a chance to shine, but there's just so many other characters who can't generate that same power. It made me feel right. bad for Eddie. Yeah, there's some great sparks and some great casting like that. But I just think that for every scene like that, there's, I mean, then he exits the movie and then it's just 
populated by the people who are kind of stagey in there. Oh, can can you believe he died? Let's have a right. wake for him through more music. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, this is yeah. feeling like a like an operetta here, just in its tone. Um, that's the thing too. And this movie came at like a funny time for. You know, it's like Phantom of the Opera and like Rent and figuring out how all these smash 90s uh, musicals were going to make a profit on the screen for the masses out there in Omaha. It was Um, Schumacher. That's how. Yeah. Schumacher and fucking Chris Columbus team up. And Bill Condon. (laughs) And Bill Condon. From the director of Kinsey comes Dreamgirls. Oh my God. But yeah, so I think it seems like the reaction at the time and then, of course, the awards um, that it was nominated for seemed to come out of a place of, you know, thank God this one's watchable because the others yeah. have not been. Um, but watching it by itself, what, 14 years later, uh, it very much feels like we don't yet know how to make a musical into a movie. Bill Condon like tries to edit so many of these musical numbers like to the beat of the song, including uh, Effie's knock down, drag out, and I'm telling you I'm not going. And it, I just found myself thinking, please just leave the fucking camera right. on this woman who's singing her eyeballs out of her skull. Stop cutting yeah. four times per measure. And even with the Beyonce at the ends, listen, you know, I remembered it being like a little bit more stationary of her in the studio recording it, but it's really not. It like cuts all over the place and it like employs some flashbacks too, which it's like, I've been here. I watched this movie the past two hours with everybody else. Like, I don't need to be reminded how we got here while I'm listening to this song that evokes previous scenes. It's all to your point. They didn't know how to do it yet. They were like figuring it out. They're just like, is this how you make it a movie? Edit a lot? <laughs> like, no. Yeah. It's not yeah. it. It's not it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's very, I mean, this movie did not, I mean, I wasn't like offended after watching it, even though I sort of sound like I might be now. It, if anything, it's pretty inoffensive in how goofy it is. Um, and it drags the second half oh, is yes. you're now did you cr- watch the four hour director's cut of this one <laughs> or did you just watch the 210 I just went with the 210 that was playing on the TNT app I mean it is great to see Eddie basically get to do his famous James Brown impersonation to incredible effect um, you can't say enough about how good Jennifer Hudson is um the Beyonce, I feel like people have, because there's so little, sometimes you can criticize Beyonce for, people have like, almost like, as a matter of mandatory footnoting, been like, but she's not good as in, not good in Dreamgirls. She's not good in those 2000s movies. Um, and <laughs> she, mostly it's just like, she's incredibly miscast. Like Beyonce's, is Beyonce is so inextricable from a level of uh, self-possession and pride and uh, a an unbridled wielding of her sexuality in exactly the way she wants to wield it. The, the 
hour of this movie where it's like, you're actually the church girl who's going to be in the back and you're not going to be sure about this whole thing. It's like the last thing that Beyonce is able to do. The minute they're like, go to the front and be the band leader. She's just like instantaneously more comfortable. Right. And then it's also ridiculous. Like Jamie Foxx has that line where he's like, I, I put you at the front of the band because like you were the most, like you were the least talent. You were like, yeah, yeah, you had no voice. Like, this is Beyonce. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's when right. she shines the most is when she's doing those, you know, those performances like that to me. Yes. It speaks to miscasting that you almost want the opposite. You want someone who's kind of like timid and without character when they are performing, but then like can do those more nuanced beats, like scene to scene. The back half of the, in my childhood or my teenage memory, the Jamie Foxx and, Beyonce like singing to each other in the house when they're having their like their final couples throwdown is 25 minutes <laughs> like it, yeah some of the balladeering in the back half is like holy shit could we not have saved a pop song for for the end yeah and I'm telling you I'm not ending <laughs> is the theme for this but then movie. it does end very suddenly at the Motown 20 or whatever that's supposed to be. Yeah, Jamie Foxx is like, is that my dog? And then it ends. <laughs> uh, where do we fall in Dreamgirls? I think it might be a bad, bad. I really wanted to like it. I uh, wanted to like it too. It's got two really good performances in it. Um, I think that the song I love from it most as a as a young person patience what this sort of like marvin gay what's going oh, yeah. on approximation which is still so funny like the like what's going on it has like chanting and jazz flute um and <laughs> they're being like this is when he gets like activists like it's just a it's just a gospel just has gospel piano that's it <laughs> um, oh we didn't even talk about how this movie kind of has that um across the universe in sort of like Detroit's having these riots outside, but like nothing's happening inside. Yeah. Right. Okay. They're, they're looting. The governor's claimed a state of emergency. It's like, okay, right. Fox news. All right. Bad, bad. Unfortunately. To and, with 2001. That, <laughs> <laughs> and with that introduction to the main event. No. Sorry, Mr. Did you ever look at someone else and think if only you had their life, you'd have it all? Look at how cool this is. Signed by all five band members of Steel Dragon. You know what the sickest thing is about you, little man? You fantasize about being somebody else, singing somebody else's songs. Oh, maybe if I get really lucky, I'll get to grow up and listen to Air Supply and wear jackboots like you. What's wrong with Air Supply? We're tired of just being a cover band. We started this because we love playing dragon tunes. You're gone, man. Am I being kicked out of the group that I started? Let's go. Hello. This is Kurt Cuddy. I play in a band called Steel Dragon. Ricky, you know your English accent is almost as lame as your guitar playing? Well, I can't do much about the accent. What do you suggest to do about my playing? Who is this? We're auditioning for a new lead singer. The good Lord has given you a hell of a voice. Do you want the gig then? We are now going to talk about 
what do we call this? Noah's choice? This was definitely the one where Noah's like, I need a weird, expensive, mediocre. Can box. I rent it for full price on Prime? I'm in. <laughs> Rockstar is our addition to this category where like the poster is way more iconic than the movie. Definitely. And like, frankly, the poster is misleading as to what this movie is. So misleading. Mark Wahlberg, if you remember from the poster of this 2001 movie, is like wearing like denim and flannel with a ponytail and a guitar strapped over. Looking like Kurt Cobain, which parenthetically he'll become at the end of the movie. But like this, the, the poster is his character at the end of this movie after the transformation. It's like, to me, it's like Gavin Rossdale walking through a dust storm is what I was going with. But it's so funny that the movie is really, really uncomfortable marketing the fact that Rockstar is completely submerged in the genre of hair metal. Absolutely. 100%. I think the two biggest issues with this movie, just on a marketing standpoint... Yes, exactly what you talked about. It's afraid to say what it is. And the second one is that it came out on September 7th, 2001. (laughs) I didn't know that. So that could be why it lost $50 million, huh? Yeah. I mean, that one's with the gods. So Rockstar is directed by uh, Stephen Herrick. Who? who... Right. But... You're talk- we're talking about the director of Noah Favorite Mighty Ducks here, who that and man the, you just hooed. You're right. Mr. Holland's Opus, Three Musketeers, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. 101 Dalmatians, live action. He had a lucrative 90s, even though nobody remembers who that is or views him as having any authorship over those movies. No. Yeah, this one seems to be the likely transition from what he did a year earlier in the Black Sabbath full-length music video. Totally, yeah. I mean, kind of. (laughs) Yeah, the IMDb synopsis is lead singer of a tribute band becomes lead singer of the real band he idolizes. I guess that's fair. Very to the point. Yeah. Steel Dragon? Steel Dragon! Yeah. No, it just gave People me the rock and roll fucking horns. love Steel Dragon. That's what I think is hilarious about this movie is that even at the moments where you think someone's going to be like, yo, Steel Dragon sucks, <laughs> they don't. They actually deeply like Steel Dragon. Everybody yeah. likes Steel Dragon. I appreciate that, even as I certainly... Well, this is the thing, and you, you arrived here, so I'm going to raise the question. Does this movie provide you the moment to revel in the like you know what fever dog's a pretty kick-ass song do they give you that (laughs) moment or did i just not revel in it because like i don't care about judas priest and poison um i mean these songs aren't very good uh i can't i mean fever dogs forever burrowed into my brain uh which part just the, the fever dog oh yeah okay i got it <laughs> scratching at my back down we definitely don't have the budget for another line so please <laughs> and please constrict your remarks to fever dog 
But that's the thing too. So this is the the fallacy, this the filmmaking fallacy I'm talking about here is not only do you have to buy into the fact that there's this ubiquitously loved band, Steel Dragon, but that the tribute band for this fake band is so good that 150 people show up to a fucking cement factory to to listen to them play yeah it's it's outrageous sure in pittsburgh is it pittsburgh Um, it's probably steel then that's right um well yeah because of steel dragon there was a thing in the movie about that cement factory's fine though i was with you (laughs) maybe it's the steel maybe i haven't considered the steel in this whole thing so yeah mark Wahlberg plays chris cole who is just the uh dedicated fastidious frontman of this tribute band that also has timothy oliphant in it and he's like trying to hold them all to the level of greatness that he's been obsessing over through this band's entire catalog um and one of the things actually that makes judas priest a fit is as i was watching this i was like but the run of most of these hair metal bands was so short like how can he be like this is from the 73 tour but like judas priest actually has that that like 15 year kind of career um before the mid 80s um i'm gonna have to stop you there and say i didn't even get to the best part about this movie and its fallacy around the fake band what, the dude? idea that not only is there a tribute band that gets 150 people to come out to a show, there is a rival tribute band <laughs> that they like compete with for authenticity and legitimacy, like for the same cover band fans, I guess. In Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. And the best part is that the guy who is the front man for the other band, um, is Stephen Jenkins from Third Eye Blind. Uh-huh. <laughs> At one, one point, gr- I really did want him to ask Mark Wahlberg to step back from that ledge. There are some really good movie moments in this movie, actually, and one of them is when the two tribute bands who are pretty much dressed the same, like, literalize that Spider-Man meme of the two Spideys shooting at each other um, as like the guitarist is grabbing onto the guitarist from the other band being like, don't pull my blouse, bro. And they all fight the identical member in the parking lot of like wherever the Steelers of Heinz field. Incredible. Good shit. Um, so if that was, if you've gotten past all of that, then sure. you need to buy into the fact that for whatever reason, and we can debate this a bit, they're uh-huh. kicking out Steel Dragon. This is not the Steel Dragon cover band. Uh, they're kicking out the iconic lead singer, Bobby Beers, because mm-hmm. either he's a diva on the road or he's gay. It's, on the one hand, it's dicey. On the other hand, it feels like it's going for something of like the way these like rust belt... Um, you know, homophobic small town weirdos who like think the band means one thing, how they interact when they realize that like the glam rock of it all is being like driven by a gay man. And there's like a transgender character who sort of like signals the fact that they like have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. Like on the one hand, it's just like 
the movie is being like, oh, isn't this weird? And that's, of course, 2001 problematic. On the other hand, I think it's trying to say something about these Pittsburghians. Who's the transgender person? Uh, Tiana? Who is, maybe I misread this, who's peeing standing up the morning after? And Chris is like, oh, oh what did I, I get myself into? I was going to ask you about that. That to me, I did I did not put that together. But that is a totally logical read and makes a lot of sense in retrospect. But that is not like bash you over the head the way the I'm gay and you guys can't deal with it monologue that that Bobby Beers gives them. Right. What an interesting moment. Yeah. Well, because I think there is also like that pretty good speech from Jeff Pilson who played in Foreigner and the thing the thing where he's like getting his blood refreshed and he's just like i'm not doing as good as i was a few years ago but he actually gives a pretty incisive speech where it's like you need to break up with jennifer aniston because women need to want you so that the guys who buy the records think that women want you so that they think if they dress like you they'll be wanted like that's the whole right. completely transient state that we exist in you're sort of like a I think it's a good, it's pretty incis- incisive critique. Isn't I like that a it. little easy, though? Like, the movie also treats rock stardom, like, the first weeks of rock stardom as, like, oh, you, you just did your first show? Well, we better turn the dance floor into an orgy quick. You know, <laughs> here, take this handful of drug. And, you know, I swear when we get to Seattle, either two days or two months later, you're going to be so strung out that you don't even remember what jennifer aniston looks like no i didn't remember what she looked like because she'd been out of this movie for so long i totally agree that all that stuff is easy and lame i'm just i was talking about something else i think the movie has a few moves in addition to like a bunch of stereotypical night moves oh these are definitely night moves I don't know about that. I think this movie is so silly uh, and it just misuses this brilliant British cast of Dominic West, Timothy Spall. Like, what are you? It almost sounds like they are both faking bad British accents because they're doing like rock star British accents. Right. Probably because they've forgotten what an accent sounds like after the weird gambit of Mark Wahlberg pretending he's British and then giving it up halfway through the first performance where he just spurts his blood everywhere because he falls off the fucking steps like a chump. This is one of those movies that just like is a little creative in the middle and then dies under the weight of like what it has to do. And that's all completely borne out in the Wahlberg performance. Um, because like a lot of this movie is the movie forcing him to do Dirk Diggler stuff, which I forever think is Wahlberg's best mode is when the, he lets the movie treat him like a doofus. I mean, this is two, <laughs> four years after Boogie Nights, two years after Three Kings, um, right after Perfect Storm. Um, Oh, his but, his star turning. <laughs> but the more, it's the Wahlberg conundrum is that the more power Christina. he gets. Bobby, Bobby, come Christina. home, Bobby. Uh, um, I love you, baby. More, You're like the waves. 
the more power that Wahlberg gets over his roles, the worse they get because it has to resolve in him. the The key question of this movie is that like this is a weird guy who's like getting on his amateur bandmates about like that guitar shriek is not like the shriek on the record. And then there's the revelation that he never even wrote his girlfriend the song that she's been cherishing since they were 15. Like the arc that needs to be resolved here is like what does this sort of like borderline OCD guy who thrives on showmanship but lacks confidence like where is he going and the movie has no ability to actually engage with those character questions yeah i almost thought it was out of character when mark Wahlberg was suggesting that they use his original songs for the next album when did he write songs he doesn't write any songs no, he doesn't. Ha- he's not a creative guy. He's a, right. uh, I don't know what he is, but. He's an obsessive who mimics. He's an obsessive with a flair for the theatrical. Yeah. Um, yeah, this movie has, like we already mentioned the songwriting. It has internal conflicts that border on the flailing. Like, isn't there a whole thing where the Timothy Spall manager is set up as a date rapist? Basically, yeah. And then it turns out, well, he's probably still a date rapist, but he has this long lost love. But yeah, he never like acts it all the way through. And then his love story ends up being what sets Chris free. And that's like, where is this shit coming from? Yeah. Well, it's the thing. The characters you're supposed to think are cool are ultimately not cool and the characters who you think are creeps like turn out to be the secret saviors and it's like well i now i just hate everyone (laughs) yeah um because there's like a universe too where even the uh timothy oliphant guy is like very sympathetic like perhaps yeah. there's a version of him where it's like he's trying to have like a normal life and like does the band thing as like a weekend warrior, but like understands that being in a tribute band is not a career. In Steel City, baby, it might be. Right. But it's played for such antagonism that he dares play original songs. Like I'm sitting yeah. there being like, why the hell's Timothy Oliphant telling him about new songs? Like play the hits, you know, get Steven Jenkins out of there. Tell him to take his amp home. That's a pretty funny and badly directed scene where they start like <laughs> fist fighting on the actual stage. You didn't want to hear uh, what's the song that Timothy Oliphant's character keeps raving about? Hole and a half. I believe the line is, I, be- I think a hole and a half kicks ass and I'm proud as shit to have written it. <laughs> Oliphant oh. also like, Oliphant would goof a lot in the late 90s and early 2000s like when he thought the movie was kind of like, loose and beneath him see laser cut keys and gone in 60 seconds and i think he's goofing uh, a little bit here there is definitely a wily <laughs> oliphant in this part where he definitely is just doing it for the paycheck yeah uh, much the way steel dragon is doing everything another thing that i hated about this movie was that it ended with a goofs section don't put the don't put the a movie like this. Don't do a what what suspension of disbelief you have gotten from the audience member. You then throw it out when it's just like, oh look, it's Mark Wahlberg doing his Marky Mark thing. How amusing! 
Yeah, it wasn't a comedy. I would request, though, do you... I mean, you've got a pretty decent Mark Wahlberg. I'd like you to do a little something. That'll at least make this experience bad good. Hey, Timothy Oliphant, could you maybe do the squeal like it sounds on the record? (laughs) Thank you. Oh, man. Very good. We didn't even talk about the fact that like one of his first media narratives is when he's like assimilated to the band is that he can sing that well because he eats a lot of pussy. Do you want to talk about that? Or do you just want to say that it was in there? That's that's it. Yeah. Did it, it sounds really foul in Dominic West's overcooked chimney sweep accent where he's like, No, Izzy does this because he eats so much pussy. <laughs> so good yeah that really is and oh yeah he just it's really weird going like, oh my voice is so good because like, my choir teacher in pittsburgh pa tells me to breathe a certain way like no no it's because you ate so much pussy mary it's poppins really <laughs> okay we gotta go we're gonna play a hit song chim chim chiru <laughs> It's a terrible movie. I can't believe you thought it was bad good. I didn't. I said it was bad, bad. I just was suggesting. Oh, thank God. I think there was uh, some stuff going on. That's all I'm saying. At least you made a case for it. Oh, you know what I forgot to talk about is uh, how the whole time I was like, don't forget to make a Stacy Jacks joke when we talk about Rockstar. And I've now, the ship has officially sailed on my Stacy Jacks joke. What was going to be your Stacey Jackson? Oh, just joke. that it was like his key influence or like, do you think that Bobby Beers got kicked out of the band to make room for Stacey Jacks? By the way, for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure it's a very small percentage, Stacey Jacks is Tom <laughs> Cruise's character in Rock of Ages. Yes. He's like this indeed. skull belt buckle Bon Jovi fuck monster <laughs> character. <laughs> Oh, man, we didn't even talk about how many music cues. Speaking of, like, movies chock full of music cues from non-band members' music. There's so... They play the entirety of uh, Living on a Prayer in one section or another. The Talking Heads cue is unforgivable. Because that's, like, antithetical. (laughs) Completely This is is not my beautiful uh, penthouse apartment. This is not my hotel room. You might find yourself in a fancy automobile. You may find yourself in a hair metal tribute movie that has nothing to do with you. (laughs) You may ask yourself, how did they get a copy of me singing? We still, what I said before is still true. We have to go. It's true. This this was fun as hell. Uh, Thanks everyone for listening. And uh, we can tell people to watch some of the Christopher Guest movies that are on Hulu. That's our next category. They're all on the the Hulu, so you should watch them all, because we may talk about them all. We just might. All right, brother. Good to see you. Absolutely. Don't forget Fever Dog scratching at your back door. I shan't. I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul. Where I'll end up, well, I think only God really knows. 